The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. I realize that we, we see this in this gospel reading today. We see a dilemma, and the dilemma is really very simple. The Jewish leader who asks Jesus the question that we all ask all the time, too. I mean, if we're really going to be honest about it, we ask the question, too. Okay, love your neighbor as yourself. Great. Who is my neighbor? In other words, do I really have to go love him or her? I mean, seriously. There are people in your world that are very unlovable. And I hate to break it to you, but you're also one of those people in somebody else's world. <laughs> Not all of you, just a few of you. And you know who you are. It's hard. It's hard to be that unlovable person, isn't it? I want people to like me. I don't care if they love me. I just want them to like me a little bit. And I want to be surrounded with people that I love too, especially with brothers and sisters in Christ. I think God takes this very seriously. But here's the man asking Jesus, and Jesus launches into a wonderful response, always with the story, always with the parable, always never giving you what you think you're going to get. But the answer to the question is really important. Who is my neighbor? Because as Christians, a lot of times, here's what you see. I'm involved in an outreach, and we go out and we help people who don't know the Lord yet. We're preaching the gospel, we're doing whatever we're doing, and we're just gung-ho, gung-ho. And then meanwhile, behind closed doors, you should hear the council meetings or the Bible study groups. Oh, wait, excuse me, the prayer concerts. <laughs> hey, we got to pray for Ed, because boy, you should hear what he's doing with his business, right? I mean, I meant that as a prayer request, right? I wasn't trying to gossip or anything like that. I mean, there's that thin line between caring for somebody and just really assassinating their character. Who is my neighbor? Jesus is very clear in John 13 who our neighbor is first and foremost, and you're looking at him right in here. Jesus says in Roger paraphrase, John 13, 34 says, hey guys, I have an idea. Why don't you just try loving each other for a while? Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be super cool if you guys got along. The Jews and the Gentiles and the Samaritans, why don't everybody just get along? Wouldn't that be awesome? What would be awesome if that's what Jesus said? But what he didn't say, hey, I have an idea. He said, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, because you will blow people's minds if there's unity in this new church. If Jews and half-breeds like Samaritans and Gentiles and slave and free and men and women and young and old can all come together in one body, you will blow people's minds just being you. So now when you look at the answer to the question, who is my neighbor, take a look around. First and foremost, this is your neighborhood, and it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It really is. This is your forever family. These are your neighbors. This is who the call is for. Now, it doesn't mean you don't love people outside of this church. You're being very nice to me right now, which is great, but we're just getting warmed up. So, I'll ask you that question in 20 minutes, and my car is already running. People are saying, hey, what are you still doing here? <laughs> it's all a matter of loving kindness. And showing that loving kindness to our neighbors. And I want, if you've got your Bible handy, I want to take you on a little journey here to Colossians chapter 1 for just a moment because we're going to take a look at a congregation that also needed this lecture as well, this conversation about loving kindness. Who is your neighbor? How do you show it to them? 
Paul writes a letter to the church at Colossae, and it's a very, very interesting letter when you think about it, because when I think of Paul going and planting churches, I think of Paul saying, okay, we're going to go, Philippi, great, Ephesus, great, we're going to go plant these churches. Colossae is a little different. Colossae was founded by a guy by the name of Epaphras, who heard the gospel preached in Rome. And Epaphras goes back to Colossae and says, hey, guys, I just heard the gospel. My heart's been changed. My life has been transformed. I mean, you should hear what this guy's preaching. He's preaching that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's exciting, right? It's, it's not a really great sales pitch when you think about it. We are all sinners. But then God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to what? Condemn the world, but to save the world, that the world might be saved through him. The good news, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. No, we don't want to all be sinners too. We need redemption. We need salvation. We need a Savior. And thanks be to God that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us as ungodly people. Thanks be to God that the blood of the Lamb washes our sin clean. We are new creatures. The old is gone, the new has come. How wonderful that is. How fascinating that is. And now we are commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's great. And Epaphras hears this message and says, Woo, this is awesome. I need to go tell everybody at Colossae about this. So he races back to Colossae and he plants a church, a new religious order, not uncommon in Paul's day, but he runs into some problems. The problem he runs into, first and foremost, is other religions. Now, we have it kind of relatively easy here in 21st century America, do we not? I mean, we can choose between churches, Christian churches, Bible-based churches. We've got lots of options. You can drive up and down the 405 and find lots of different church homes. You've chosen this one. You were drawn here. Praise God. Thanks be to God for that. This is a vibrant community of faith. I love it. But in Paul's day, you had all sorts of religious traditions, all sorts of spiritualists, vying for attention. Gnosticism, for example. The Gnostics were kind of an interesting bunch because they believed you could worship God in spirit, but you couldn't worship God in your body. Your body was corrupted. It was polluted. So do you remember the expression? I'm kind of dating myself here now, but it was kind of like, you know, you can be a sinner on Saturday as long as you're a saint on Sunday. It's very Gnostic thinking. As long as you're in church on Sunday asking for forgiveness for whatever you've done the rest of the week, you're good. And that actually squared with Gnostic theology because they believed that God was perfect in spirit. You could worship him in spirit, but your body was so corrupt, there's no way. That Holy Spirit dwelling in my heart is not going to happen. Now you're this brand new church in Colossae, and you've been juxtaposed against this faith tradition, and after a while, what happens? They start kind of commingling. Now, that never happens in the church here in 21st century America. We're not influenced by the culture at all, are we? <laughs> Hopefully not. But Epaphras realizes there's a problem, so he races back to Rome and finds Paul under house arrest. Big surprise for preaching the gospel. Apparently, we should get used to that. And so Paul is under house arrest and says, I can't go back with you, but who are you again? <laughs> what did you do? Oh, you're Epaphras. You started a church. Starts talking about how wonderful the church is. Hey, this is great. This is super. Write you a letter. Take it back to them. And now he reads this letter. And in the first part of the letter, if you take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, 
I'm reading from my John MacArthur Bible here because it was autographed by the author. <laughs> you guys are fun. Paul writes, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us unto the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That sounds very basic to us, does it not? That was very basic to them too. There was just one problem with the Colossian church. That's kind of where they stopped. The seed planted in the shallow soil grows up really quickly and then kind of withers away. So they didn't know. If you challenge our faith system, if you challenge our belief system, it holds up. But in their case, any kind of challenge, they kind of fall apart. It's like a lot of people in the culture today. You challenge a biblical principle and they just melt. Instead of saying, wait a minute, just because you don't like this doesn't mean that God's word isn't true. On Christ the solid rock we stand. So when the wind blows and the fire comes down and the power goes out or whatever, we can still be standing. That doesn't change. Look at the changes we've seen in the culture with regard to attacks on the family recently. Did God's word change? Just because the Supreme Court said, hey, we've got a great idea how to redefine marriage. It didn't change. It didn't change at all. Rock solid. The church at Colossae didn't know that. And so Paul was reminding them. And Paul reminds them of this because what they were finding was it was becoming very difficult for the church at Colossae to love each other. It was becoming very, very difficult for the Jews, especially in the early church, to accept anybody who wasn't Jewish. You had what were called Judaizers who said, oh yeah, you're a Gentile, you want to be a Christian, you want to be a Christ follower, great. First you have to become a Jew like Jesus. And then you can be really part of the church. Well, if you've got one group inside determining the rules for the other group, instead of saying, hey, this new commandment I give you, love one another, you can see it's a recipe for disaster. Which is why I stress the importance of sharing love and kindness within the church. Now, I know that everybody in here gets along fabulously with everybody else. There's no division, there's no strife whatsoever, right? Never an argument. Yes, an argument, what's that? We don't have arguments, we're the church. No, sometimes we do contend for the faith, and iron sharpens iron. It's okay to have those, but you understand that if you don't know who your neighbor is, you can't really love your neighbor, and it's very difficult. What helps us love our neighbor and obey this command is a Hebrew term that doesn't really have a direct connection in Scripture because English is kind of a weird language. You know, English. There's four different Greek words for love, and what do we say? Love. Right? Well, what kind of love are you talking about? Well, love, right? Is it Philadelphia? Is it Eros? Is it Agape? Love. You can understand why the culture is so confused. What is love? How do I feel today? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Well, you can't even define the word. How are you going to count the ways? The word I'm talking about is hesed, or maybe there's a reason why you're not sitting in the front two rows. Hesed. It's got kind of a CH at the front. <laughs> so you knew I was going there, right? Hesed, the best way to translate that into English, I can't think of any other good way, is loving kindness. Isn't that a great word? Loving kindness. It sounds so warm. It sounds so inviting. It sounds so friendly. It sounds so caring. Loving kindness. 
We used to sing a camp song when the kids were younger. Thy love and kindness is purer than light. That's all I remember. It's just that part. But that, I mean, you think about the way you remember Scripture verses is thy loving kindness purer than light. And we talk about God's loving kindness for us. And it sounds great. What do you think of when you think of loving kindness? Do you think of, I think of giving my grandma a big hug. My mom's mom loved her to pieces. She was the perfect huggable size, about five, five, 150 pounds, baked all the time, you know, glasses on the little string down around here. She's a very loving Christian woman. It was great. Loving kindness to me is giving a hug from grandma and getting one right back from her. We all have our own definitions of how we experience loving kindness. But loving kindness in this sense literally means what it means. God, in his loving kindness, sent his son Jesus to die for you and for me. We deserved wrath. God sent loving kindness. We deserved death. He sent life. That loving kindness. Think about it. Imagine Jesus walking the earth for 33 years, fully God, fully man. What? Could anybody inhabit and dwell in his presence as fully God, sinful beings? Of course not. But because of his loving kindness, he did not pour his wrath out on us. So now let's take a look at our reading from Luke chapter 10, the uh, gospel reading that we refer to often as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And let's think about what loving kindness looks like because we have obstacles in our way as sinful people that keep us from loving other sinful people. Can we agree on that? We're human, fallen people, and our biases get in the way. Maybe you got burned by somebody and there's a wound there that God hasn't healed yet. It's in the process of healing it, and sometimes there are those folks who agitate your faith, sometimes in a good way. When I think about agitation, I think about doing the laundry, right? You know what that little gizmo in the middle is, right? It's called the agitator. You put the soap in, the water in, the laundry in, you turn it on, and it goes, rrr, 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 unless you overload it the wrong way, and then it goes, doo, 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 and it stops. You have to repack it. But sometimes God uses these agitators to bring out our issues, to bring out our problems. So let's take a look at the parable of the Good Samaritan and see the loving kindness. Jesus is confronted by this ruler of the law, this leader, and he answers him from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He asked Jesus a question. Jesus says, well, how do you read this? Because I know you're a smart guy. How do you figure this out? He says, oh, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, all right. Good answers. Any questions? And the guy says, yeah. So who is my neighbor? In other words, how far can I get to the edge here and put my foot over the edge without actually falling? You know, kids do this all the time. You work in youth ministry. Most common question you get from junior high and high school kids, you're having the talk about sexual purity, and what's the first question they ask? How far is too far? Is God really okay with, am I really going to go to hell for, because they're kids. We do that too. I mean, it's a good thing that's going to hold up my water bottle, but I pounded it to make sure it wasn't going to fall over. If you have little kids or grandkids and they walk over to the wall and they pound on it, and the first thing you think of is, stop making that noise. But you know what they're doing? Hey, I'm two, and I just got mobility, and so I'm going to toddle on over here, and I'm going to walk over to the wall. 
I hope I don't carry a lot of feedback, but if I do, I apologize. Maybe the lights will just go out again. We won't have a problem. I come over to the wall and I, like that. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I like it. And now mom and dad are going, mm, like that. But remember, the reason little Junior is doing that is because he honestly thinks in his two-year-old brain that if I hit that wall, it's going to fall over. But he hits the wall a couple times and realizes it's not going to fall over. It just makes a cool sound now. Now it's a lot of fun. It makes my hand tingle. Ooh, that's great. And we're on to the next experience. So this question that is asked of Jesus actually is a very fair one, and Jesus doesn't buckle. He says, who is my neighbor? Pound, pound, pound. Do I really have to love my neighbor as myself? I mean, who exactly is this neighbor anyway? And Jesus says, let me show you who your neighbor is. And then he gives him a very, very practical illustration. Note to all of ourselves, when we are sharing the gospel, when we are living it out with people, how many times do you see Jesus do this? I'm sitting on a hillside with a bunch of shepherds. The kingdom of heaven is like, and he goes into an agrarian story that they all relate to. In this case here, you got a leader. You understand that he knows the law, and he says, okay, here we go. We're walking along this road. You know the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is kind of a nasty road. It's not a great part of town. The priests would minister in Jerusalem, but they lived in Jericho, and so it was not uncommon for priests and Levites to be walking this road. I was born and raised in Orange County, and so I remember growing up in the Cowan Heights area where my parents were school teachers and choir directors. We were not nearly brain surgeons like a lot of my friends from high school were. Their dads were, anyway. The kids weren't. God, I hope they weren't. 15-year-old doing brain surgery, that'd be scary. But we all knew where the bad areas of Orange County were, right? Depending on where you grew up. I mean, everyone knows where the bad part of town is. This was the bad part of town. This is the place that you avoided. And so Jesus says, okay, here's the story. In a place that you would not ordinarily go, there's a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan traveling on this road. The priest is walking down the road, and he sees the guy who's beaten up and left for dead, robbed, and he's just lying there bleeding and, you know, unconscious. And the priest sees him and goes on the other side of the road. Now, you might give the priest a pass at this point. He doesn't want to be ceremonially unclean. He might think this guy's dead for all he knows, and he can't touch the body. So you could almost give the priest a pat. Plus, if the priest is traveling on his own, and this is a rough part of town, who's to say that there aren't guys sitting behind the wall or behind the, you know, down in the ditch? We beat this guy up and left him here, and someone comes over to take care of him, and we'll jump him and rob him too. Now, my hunch is since he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, the priest is probably off duty, heading home, so can't really give him a pass there, but he keeps on walking. And the Levite keeps on walking. And then here comes a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan part of the story, this is the kind of Jewish half-breed thing. This is where Jesus sometimes likes to get a little dig in. Okay, the priest and the, you know, the Levi, whatever, but here comes a Samaritan. And you can see all the Jewish people kind of going, Samaritan. This is Samaritan, and what does he do? Binds up his wounds, pours oil and wine, you ever poured wine on a wound? Not, not willingly. Apparently it works. We'll have to try it sometime. I'm not volunteering. <clears throat> he binds up the wounds, and then he takes him to an inn. Now, this is kind of gutsy. He doesn't know this guy. 
Picks him up, binds the wounds, takes him to an inn, and says to the innkeeper, here's two days' worth of wages for a common person, two denarii. You keep him here. I'm going away. When I get back, put it on my tab. Now, what does that tell you about the Samaritan? First of all, he's a man of means. Secondly, he must know the innkeeper. You don't just walk into some place, you know, motel, what, Super 8 or something like that, that you don't know the guy and say, oh, by the way, here's a stranger that I just met on the road. He's near death. And put it on my tab with no credit card. Right? I mean, that's, that's not going to happen. So you figure that this guy has means. I, I surmise from the text that this Samaritan probably travels this road. Maybe he travels this road a lot because he's a Samaritan. I'll take the back road. I'll take the place where all the gangsters are because it's like, well, you know, no one wants to see me around anyway on the main highways. I'll be gone for a couple days. I'll come back. Business trip. Stays at this inn a lot. The guy knows him. He has a relationship with him. But notice something about what he does for him. He cares for him. He does not preach at him. He doesn't ask him about the condition of his salvation. He doesn't pull out the four spiritual laws or something like that. Hey, are you a Christian? Because if you're a Christian, I can take you right over here to my Christian. No, he doesn't do that. He says, this is where I travel. This is my world. And he shows to him said. He shows to him loving kindness. Did the Samaritan owe this guy anything? No, he didn't even know him. Is this guy going to be able to repay him? We don't know. But he shows, has said to him, he shows loving kindness. He shows him unmerited favor. Does that sound familiar, brothers and sisters? Back to Colossians for just a moment as we think about what this means for us, loving kindness that we, that we demonstrate to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the key parts of our journey as brothers and sisters is something that we don't think often enough about, I wish we did more, because it's hard to balance. It's hard to square. It's hard to cut through the middle and find out where is God and where is me. And that is the whole idea of earning your way to heaven versus being fruitful in ministry and in your life. Now, I didn't grow up on a farm. Anyone here grow up on a farm or with the agricultural world? So, you, so you're used to planting a crop in season, making sure the ground is right, making sure that you've got the right seed and the right soil and all that stuff, and then up it comes again. I'm not. I'm smartphone guy. I'm swipe to the right, hold up the phone to scan. I want everything now. And so this is one part of God's economy that I'm glad we still have in Scripture, the whole idea that these things take time and then bear fruit. How do you know what kind of tree you're looking at? Or what kind of plant? By its fruit, exactly. Friends of mine went up to Oak Glen over the weekend, I guess yesterday, and they, they were up in Oak Glen for the Apple Festival. You walk around all the different orchards and you see apples and they're delicious, all different types of apples and they're fruity and delicious and good and delicious and really, really good. I love the apples up there. But you know what kind of tree it is but what kind of fruit it bears. And this concept of fruitfulness is something that uh, sometimes we miss. In uh, Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. Paul's writing now, remember, to the, Coloss the Colossian church. 
the church that heard the gospel from Epaphras but are being influenced by the culture. And Paul's trying to make sure that they are hearing the true gospel. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it had been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Bearing fruit. How does it bear fruit? It multiplies. Every time you open an apple or some other seed-bearing plant, you cut open that apple. My mom was a first-grade teacher, so we heard the legend of Johnny Appleseed all the time. It's really cute. It's really sweet. But every time I core an apple, I look at all those seeds and say, oh, my gosh, there's an orchard in here. Right? Isn't that incredible? Now, I don't mean to guilt you out right before lunchtime, but the reality is look at the way God operates. You plant a seed from an apple, and an orchard can grow because a tree and more apples and more seeds and more apples and more seeds. God's looking for the same replication in our lives, too. He doesn't just save you from your old self so that you can be a better version of your old self. You're a new creation. You are a, a living stone in God's ecclesia, the church that's being built. It's kind of an awesome responsibility when you think about it. Your life is being transformed and remolded and reshaped, and then it's also, at the same time, everybody else's is, too, who's a Christian. And so all of our lives are being reformed and reshaped together as these perfect stones into another stone-based church. And God's building that church. So think about it. You're a better Christian now than you were a half an hour ago, and not because of my preaching, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, I'd like to think this is helping. But back to Colossians for just a moment, verse 6 and following. I talked about the fruitfulness, and then Paul says, you learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you, knowing that when he had heard about them, and he writes the letter, and then it's going to go back, from the moment he heard about it, he started praying for this congregation. And what was he praying? We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, bearing fruit. You probably know somebody in your life right now who has professed faith in Christ for many, many years. And if you think back on your relationship with them, you might ask yourself, I wonder if their life is bearing any fruit. See, our job is not to judge people, but we are called to be fruit inspectors. I mean, think about this now. I, Think about this now. I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself even further. Tree pose, right? Okay. Think of yourself as a tree that is bearing fruit. What kind of fruit is God bearing in your life? Once it happens, unless you're an apple tree in the Wizard of Oz, you don't get to eat the fruit of your labor. Remember when they're throwing the apples at each other and stuff like that? You don't have that control. So think, you're a tree, oops, you're a tree, if you're not sitting close to somebody, you can hold your hands out. Be a tree. I feel like we're in a method acting class now, right? Okay, I'm a tree, and the wind is blowing through my leaves, and there's a bird nesting in my hair, but I don't have much hair left, so a bird can't nest very long. Think of the kind of fruit that God is bearing in your life. You can put your hands down. What kind of fruit is God bearing in your life? The beautiful thing about that is not only is that the work of the Holy Spirit, it's not a work of you. You stay planted in the Word. You stay rooted in God's grace. You stay in community with other believers. Then the fruit 
that is born. And we can all look at everybody else's fruit and say, wow, this is really cool. You're drawn to those people. You want to be with those people. Wow, you have the fruit of gentleness. You have patience. You have peace. You have kindness. You have love. You have joy. I love that about you. But here's the best part. Now, as you're sharing that with your brothers and sisters, people walk by and go, whoa, look at that fruit. Can I have some? Sure. Wow. How did that fruit grow in your life? And all of a sudden you say, 1 Peter 3.15, hey, did you just ask me the reason for my hope? Did you just ask me about why my life is bearing this kind of fruit? Well, Scripture's very clear. I'm not supposed to come after you with my Bible and hit you over the head with it and say, you need to hear this. But when you ask me, I am compelled to give you an answer. Bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. In John's gospel, he's very clear about fruit and being part of the the vine and the branches. Jesus talks about how the Father cuts off the branches that aren't bearing fruit and cuts back the ones that are. Because, in case you haven't figured out, if you've ever seen a tree that's overgrown, the branches are hanging down on the ground, and the fruit's kind of just sitting there doing whatever, you can't bear any more fruit off that unless you do what? Pick the fruit, cut the branch. So I know there are times in our lives as Christians where we think, hey, things are going so well, and all of a sudden you, God prunes back the branch of your life, and you say, wait, but that was my job. That was my car. That was my house. That was a relationship with my child. That was my marriage. What, wait, wait, whoa, what's going on here? I'm not saying God calls people to divorce, but I mean, when you see something tragic like that happen, sometimes all of a sudden now your tree is kind of like a tree. Feeling my branches are really cut back. What's going to happen? How am I going to be fruitful? And then you remember God's loving kindness. You remember that has said that he shows for you and for me that begins with Jesus on the cross and the blood of the lamb that washes us pure. And you begin to see how in this story of the Good Samaritan, it's not so much a question of the quote-unquote Samaritan doing the work, But what kind of condition were you in when Jesus reached out to you with the offer of salvation? What did you have to offer him? I think it's a Bill Gaither song that says, all I had to offer him was brokenness and strife. Isaiah's saying, I'm a man of unclean lips. My righteousness is as filthy rags. We had nothing to offer him. Sin had been beating us up and beating us up and left us for dead by the side of the road and all of a sudden a good Samaritan shows up and binds up our wounds and gives us new life and pays the penalty, pays the price for all of the healing. And you begin to realize Jesus is the good Samaritan. We are the traveler on the road. Can you imagine what kind of testimony this guy had? I mean, it's a parable. But can you imagine what kind of testimony this guy has saying, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know where he came from, but he offered me life. He said, I will pay the price for what happened to you. I will be your salvation. Who wouldn't want that? It's like what Billy Graham says about uh, the, the, the uh, the gift of salvation for people who are perishing. 
It says, here we are throwing life preservers out into the choppy waters and people are drowning saying, help, save me, save me. Here's the life preserver, here's a boat, here's an airplane, here's something. The offer is there. The gospel is for all who are perishing and for a reminder for us who have been saved, who have been redeemed, who've been rescued, who've been restored, and the redemption process is going on. So as I think about these passages here in the story of the Good Samaritan, I realize that the hesed, this loving kindness, is really a lot dirtier and a lot grittier than we might make it out to be. When I hear the word loving kindness, I expect to go to Lifeway Christian store and find a little toll art painting on the side with maybe precious moments figurines. Right? Then that's what the word sounds like. It sounds like two little kids on the preschool playground giving each other a hug or, you know, a little girl holding a flower up for mom. and Oh, that's so cute. But loving kindness looks like Jesus' battered and bruised body on the cross paying the penalty for my sin, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But knowing that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's the ultimate loving kindness. The question we find ourselves confronted with today is really a very simple one. When we look at division in the body of Christ, how do we answer the question, who is my neighbor? got a lot of people right now who are looking to a presidential candidate to make things right in this country. Whatever that means. I mean, seriously, does it, I'm chuckling too. What does it mean to make things right in this country? Is that what our command is? We have to obey the authority of the law. I mean, God ordains governments. There's no question about that. But is it possible that the reason why we have these two interesting choices for president is that God's saying, hey, where's your first love? I showed loving kindness to you. You show loving kindness to each other. You're not going to be satisfied with anybody who winds up in the White House now. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk about loving kindness. Let's talk about what God expects from us. Let's talk about what that looks like in our lives. Let's talk about what kind of fruit that we see. Not in a judgmental way. When you walk through an orchard, you're not being a judge. You're saying, look, there's a lemon. Look, there's an apple. Look, there's a pear. Then you can look at it and say, hey, this fruit's pretty good. Ah, this fruit's kind of rotten. You're not being judgmental. You're not being hate-filled. It's loving kindness. Hey, let's trim this branches back so we can bear even more fruit. This is a really good tree. I want to be fruitful. I'm called to be fruitful. So are you. That loving kindness is the measure of our fruitfulness. Now, here's the hard part about this. I don't get to determine how fruitful I am. I hear about it from my brothers and sisters. I hear about it from the Lord. I hear about it from the conviction of the Holy Spirit of how fruitful I am in preaching the gospel. Is it based on numbers? Is it based on building size? What if someone to come into the sanctuary here today? You're a larger congregation than some churches. You're a smaller than others. Is that a sign of fruitfulness? God uses all sorts of different shapes and sizes of fruit and says, this is fruitful. But the question we're confronted with today in the story of the Good Samaritan is really, when people look 
and do the fruit inspection on us, what do they see? Are they greeted with loving kindness? Are they greeted with genuine care and concern, a selfless sacrifice, lives that look redeemed? Do they see us checking off the box? I went to church on Sunday. Look at me. Now, I have to admit, um, Phil and I took a selfie before the service. <laughs> well, Dave's a friend of, friend of mine, and so I put a selfie up on Instagram. Some people might look at that and go, oh, I know why you're doing that. I'm very mindful of that. We live in a culture that likes to do that. Look how perfect my family is. Look how perfect my job is. Oh, look, we're having another vacation. We're so blessed to be in Hawaii. When others see our lives, what kind of fruit do they see? My prayer is that they see the fruit of love and kindness that was first expressed to us, the seeds that were sown in our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we pray, think about the fruit that God is bearing in your life. Not just who you're going to vote for for president. You can pray about that later. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for giving us your law written on our hearts that levels us when we need to repent. But thank you for the good news of the gospel that raises us to a newness of life that allows us to walk in fellowship with you and with each other. And Father, as you build us up each individually and also as a congregation and also as a church universal, I pray, Father, that as those around us are inspecting the fruit that's being born in our lives, they'll know it's from you They'll know that you planted that seed, that you're growing it, and that we're just letting it all hang out. Father, thank you for forgiving us of our sin and giving us everlasting life. In Jesus' name.